Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Because these are short ones, uh, and they're actually pretty cheap for So, I'm just going to get my medicine down here. Well, what do you mean? I didn't want that to happen. I'm going to move. Supposed to be there. Okay, um, so the first thing we're talking about today is transformations. So, sometimes you look at your data with EDA, or toward data analysis, which again, I really encourage you all to do whenever you collect data, is literally to look at charts and graphs and stuff. Uh, Carl actually was doing some art pieces with me, just finished collecting his data, and I, he said, what do you want me to do? I said, I want you to make me graphs. I, I don't want to, we'll do the stats later. I want to look at graphs. Draw them by hand and take a picture with your phone and email them to me if you have to. I don't care, I just want to get a feel for the, what the numbers look like. And we also just looked at a spreadsheet just to get a feel. And I remember looking at it, I said, oh, it worked. I think your experiment worked just by looking at it. It feels right. But that happens a lot. Now, I don't think it's going to happen with Carl's data, but sometimes you do the analysis of variance, and it's clear before, hey, you've got a graph, you've got all the batches of numbers in front of you. You might have done box and whisker plots or stem plots or whatever, and you don't find anything with the ANOVA. It comes up and says P is less than 0.23. You go, what? Usually that's because you violate an assumption. Because see, one thing my one of the main things my PhD supervisor used to say, besides Dave get back to work, um, was that statistics are there to prove what you already know. So Sarah always said that. She said they're just there to prove what you already know. You looked at the data, you know what happened. Now this is just to confirm that it wasn't random chance. So usually what's happened is you violated some assumption. Um, usually it's, it's the variance assumption. If it's not the variance assumption, you're screwed. Okay, if it's something like, and the old, like I've mentioned before, the other big one that you would violate conceivably is the independence of observations. If you did that, you don't know how to design an experiment and you should go back to high school. Uh, you've got to have independent observations. It's very important. And it's really hard to screw that up. So it's probably the variance assumption, the homogeneity, the variance assumption. And it's pretty robust. I know it's an exceedingly, exceedingly robust thing. Um, like I said, the rule of thumb is like it's one four times bigger than another. But frankly, you can violate even worse than that if everything else is really nice. You can also, um, when, you know, you worry about the normality assumption, Monte Carlo experiments using zeros and ones show that anal still works pretty well. So in other words, if it's even if it's that violated, you're okay. So really it's almost always gonna be a variance issue. So like that one, my transition, it's pretty good. Eh? Later, start with. Um, so what are we gonna do? Well what we do is we transform our data. Usually what you're doing, well usually always what you're doing is some kind of mathematical operation. Okay? Now, so what we're going to do is you might do something like, well, I'm going to divide all these by 20. <coughs> I don't know that we've got to get you, but that's, that's, that's the essence of it. I'm going to add a bunch of numbers 
to the numbers I have. I'm going to take the square root of all the numbers I have. I'm going to torture the data until it tells me what I want. This is like stigma, except you'll get something reliable. You'll hear people say they don't think it sounds fair. It doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound like he's going to take the square root of all these numbers. What do you mean to do that? That doesn't sound like something you should do. Well, if you took a number and you, here's the transformation. You got all these numbers and you multiply them times five ninths and, and subtract 32. Sounds weird. Sounds weird. Converting Fahrenheit to Celsius. You know those um, Yankee imperialist degrees they use across the river? Not free-thinking, peace-loving degrees like we use here? It's 73. There's only two countries left in the world that use Fahrenheit. The States and Liberia. <laughs> I should tell you something. But you hear it on the radio all the time. It's 73 or 21. You don't go, well, one of those is wrong. They're just different scales, right? So it's not like you're violating anything or doing anything that's not fair. What you're doing is completely fair. There's nothing wrong at all. So it is so fair. There's, there's really nothing wrong with doing this. You just got to do it for the right reasons. So what you're doing is you're re-expressing your data. You're changing the units. All you're doing is changing the units. Nothing else. So here's a transformation. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a list of like four or five transformations you can use under certain, certain circumstances. The first one is the log transformation. This is just taking the logarithm of a number. <coughs> you know what, who doesn't know what a logarithm is? Don't be embarrassed. I will explain it in 45 seconds. Okay, no problem. Let's think of the easiest kind of logarithm, which is log base 10. Have you ever seen the button on your calculator that says log? You guys all thought, what's that for? That's for just this kind of logs are going to come out of my calculator. I better not touch that button. Or it's forget logging on the internet. That's what that's for. I got rid of internet calculators. So if you take the log is 10, of the number 100, it equals 2. Ooh, fancy. You've got the log is 10 of the number 10. It's 1. Log of base 10 of the number 10,000. How am I doing that? It's, you're right, it's really, in this case, just a number of zeros. Because um, 10 to the fifth equals that. 10 to the one equals that. 10 squared is 100. What's the log of 1? It's 0 because 10 to the 0 is 1. Yes, math is weird. What's the log of 0? It's when you get an E on your calculator. You can't do it. Can't use negative numbers or 0. Anything less than or equal to 0, you can't do it. Okay? But you see what happened here? This is a huge number. I'll turn it into 5. This is a... Look, look, number, this is all orders of magnitude, really, right? So we go 1, 2, 2, 1, and 5 instead of 110 and 
100,000. If we took the variance of those three numbers, we get something. We get something around a million. Now, if we take the variance of these three numbers, we get something around. Two is three, five, eight, three, around four. Gee, that seems better. There are variables like this in the world. There's a lot of variables like this. Okay? Reaction time. As fatigue increases. So you get people to do the reaction time thing where uh, so the, the light shows up. Why do they wear this one? Here's the chart today. Damn it. Um, by the way, you know, if you ever teach, it's totally all kinds of... Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Revenge from other teachers that you laughed at as kids that wore black stuff and they got chalk dust on. And then it happens to you. And then you suck. <laughs> so as fatigue increases, your reaction time increases. But it doesn't increase in a linear fashion. It increases exponentially. Right? So if it increases exponentially, why don't we like straight lines? Because if it's exponential, at the very high end, you're going to have really high reaction times and kind of some other low ones. It's going to have huge variance. At the very beginning, you have very small variance. So in fact, reaction times are almost always log-transformed just as a matter of course, because we know the assumption of homogeneity variance will be violated immediately. So exponential curves like reaction time. What do you do if you have a negative value? You would have that reaction time, but if you had some other things. Um, a lot of times growth rates are exponential, things like that. So what do you do if you have a negative value or a value at zero? All you do is just add a constant to all of them. So take the logarithm of x, whatever the x is the number, and we're going to add 5. So x plus k, let's 5 to all of them. Just pick a number. It makes it so all of them are at least greater than zero. There's nothing wrong with doing that. So log of x plus k in that case. Uh, typically, by the way, you will not use the base 10 logarithm. Um, I was doing that to, to demonstrate what a logarithm is. You would typically use a natural logarithm, which is to the base e. E is like one of those numbers like pi. It's just a weird constant of the universe. 2.718281828, etc. Excuse me? <laughs> the middle part again? You bring like tickle me elbow in here. This is references as fresh as 20 years old's toy. Here's those toys. Tickle me elbow. Warm in here? Okay. So, you understand this? Pretty simple, right? All you're doing is taking, taking the letter, and you, you usually use natural logarithm. So, Excel has a, a log uh, function, SPSS has one, um, SAS has one, they all, every all of them have it. Oh, you can take the square root. What about, why would you take the square root? I'm not going to really get into the, to the whys. With, with, with logarithms, it makes sense. You all know what a square root is. When you have counted data, counted data, so how many of whatever did something this group do, how many this group do? So this could be like graded on a test. Something like that, because it's counted data, really, isn't it? It's just numbers. Number of words recalled. In that case, you tend to get low variances in one group if they're very high or very low, and high variances in the middle. Right? 
So all you do is you take the, that's when the means are proportional to the variances. Now, how do you know that? Well, you just have to exploratory data analysis. You look at the data and you say, what are the means and what are the variances? Are the means proportional to the variances? So as the means go up by five, five times, or two times, do the variances go up by five times or two times? If they are, use the square root transform. Square the original number, or add a constant first because it's a number that's greater than the other circle that's less than zero. So you might want to be square root of x plus, again, x plus k. What's yeah, the problem with the means being proportional to the variance? Because what if, well, if you've got one mean that's 1 and one mean that's 10, what means one variance is 10 times bigger than another variance as well, right? And of course, that's going to be the 4 times the sort of the rule of thumb, 10 times more, right? And the nice thing is, when the means are proportional to the variances like that, so if you plot it out, you can do this, just graph it, mean and variance. If you see a straight line, you go, okay, now I see why I didn't get significance. I probably violated homogeneity variance, but I know how to fix it, square root. Just take the square root of all the numbers. Reciprocal is flip it upside down. You know, like one third becomes three. Two-thirds becomes three-halves. It's flipping. That's a reciprocal. Let's just take the reciprocal. Um, this actually makes the range smaller, which makes all the variances smaller. Just think about it. If you have a really big number, let's say 100, now it becomes 1, 100. <coughs> so if you've got a whole bunch of really big numbers and some really small numbers, so that, again, could cause, as you probably guess, variance problems. If you take the reciprocal of all these, it's going to suck them all in. This is really good latencies. So time to do something. Not reaction time, but how about time to complete a maze? If it was a rat, or if it was Carl's experiment, it was a person. Right? We're going to look at his analysis this afternoon, and I got a feeling I'm going to say, well, he's got two things. He's got counted data and number of errors, and he's got latencies. Time to complete the maze. And I'm sure it worked. Like, I looked at the numbers. I'm sure the experiment worked, but I have this feeling because I haven't seen the output yet when he did the analysis that he's not going to find significance and he's going to be upset. Uh, but I'm going to say, don't worry. Just take the square root of the number of errors and take the reciprocal of the latencies and we're in business. All you're doing there is you're converting time into speed, aren't you? Right? When you think about it, with, with a latency, with a time to do something, last time. All you're doing. So this is really pretty straightforward transformation. It's easy to do, and it fixes this almost immediately. And like with latencies, again, it's almost done as a matter of course. People just do it. My rule, I always say this, don't transform if you don't have to. That's just me. Not everybody thinks that way, but why transform? Why make the reader have to do math in their head when you're reading your article? Why not make it so they go, oh, I see, it just works. But if you want to do it, or sorry, if you have to do it, do it. But I think it's not something you should do right away. Though with latencies, people do it all the time. Ah, the arc sign. Yes, and you thought trigonometry had no use, didn't you? This is used with proportions or percentages. Now, in psychology, we use a lot of proportions and percentages, don't we? Right? Percent correct. 
you think of sort of uh, data from all kinds of memory experiments, percentage correct. Or it could be if you um, go back to some of these memory courses, think of, you know, you're looking at a priming score, and that's going to be a percentage score. Anything with proportions, percentages. What this does is it stretches both tails out, if you're interested. And that's the transformation. Okay? X is the original value. You're going to get what you want to call it X prime, maybe. You take the square root of the original value, then you take the arc sign of the square rooted value, then you multiply it times 2. Except if it's Tuesday. No, I mean, that's part up. So, this will actually, the strange thing is the unit this is turning this into is like, you know, radians, which is really kind of cool in a way. Um, you don't even have to know what an arc sign is. It's just a trigonometric function. And again, any stats package at all, and also any uh, spreadsheet, has an arc sign quantity or uh, function built into it. So it's not like you have to use it. But again, there is a, there's a, there's a button perhaps on your calculator that says arc sign, and you always wonder what does that mean? When we were talking about power, you're saying you shouldn't get you get more power, so does it increase power? It's like winding. What this actually hopefully will do, you're gonna lose power in these cases because you violated an assumption. The nice thing about violating assumptions, the only nice thing, is you don't tend to make false positives. So you don't make a complete idiot yourself. You don't go, there are psychics. However, you miss things like, oh, they're psychics, and you miss it. Because you get false, you lose power by violating that assumption. So what this is going to do, this a new question. What this is going to do is it's actually going to allow you to find something if it's there. Right? Um, because those power calculations assume that you haven't violated any other assumption. Right? But the only assumption really that you've sort of violated is the non-hypothesis assumption. That everything else is fine. So we want to make sure that's true. Right. Like I said, the nice thing about violating the assumptions typically is they give you more false negatives. You know. So that's okay. So that's two times dark sign square root. I've used this one before um, with percentages. Um, I've also not used it using percentages because it already worked and I had no reason to change it. And I actually remember getting into an argument with my PhD supervisor and she said, well, you should do the transformation. I said, why? It worked. Well, that's what everybody does. And I said, why does everyone do that? And she actually like, has a, a double major in math and psychology. It's not like she doesn't know math. And then she actually said, she said, I really don't know. She really does. I said, well, it makes it more complicated. I don't want to do that. I said, look, it worked. So it worked. The question you might ask yourself is, when would you transform your data? You don't do it every opportunity you get. You know, I've connected data. Now let's add 12 to all of them and see what happens. That's not how you do this. If the variances are messy, that's when you try this. Um, and try, you can try a number of them if the variances are messy. There are certain variables like proportions, like counted data, like um, reaction times, like latencies, where you know, oh, I know the, what the appropriate transformation will be. These are rough guidelines they give you to pick a transformation. 
Um, they may help you. If your data don't violate assumptions, it seems like why would you transform the data? It just, it's, it's an extra level of complexity for you to understand. Like, I know when I look at numbers and it says 80% correct versus 60% correct for two groups, I know what that means. I can't for the life of me tell you what two times the arc sine square root of 80 is. I just don't know. So then when I look at my data, I go, I don't know what this means anymore. When you do present your data, you know, if you're doing your thesis presentation or if you're doing writing a paper, you always present the untransformed data. Because again, the audience, no matter who they are, doesn't know what, you know, two times the arc sine square root of 80% is. They just don't know that. Why would they? What they're going to understand is 80%. We get that. You know, of course, in the text, like of uh, the results section, um, data were two times, two times arc sine square root transformed. And then you're, you're away to the races. But you never present those data like that because no one gets it. No one knows what it means. All right. Questions about that? Do you see that's pretty straightforward? And then it disappears. All right. Here's another one. Look, two lectures in one day. It's a bonus day. But they're little lectures. So I was asked this just the other day. I can't remember who asked this when I did the, the, you know, the lecture. It was somebody over here. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. That asked, like, how do we know what group's different? It was one of you three guys, I think. I don't know which one. Um, so you've, done, you've got a significant F, right? You've done the analysis of variance. You've got so many groups. You've done analysis of variance. You're very happy. You maybe you transformed your data, maybe you didn't. I don't know. But the important thing is you've got a significant result. You found that one of the two groups, one of the three groups, whatever, sorry, it's two groups have to do this. Let's say three groups, five groups, 26 groups. That two of those groups are not like the others. Two of those groups are not the same. <laughs> Thank you for getting the Sesame Street reference. Oh, who doesn't love Sesame Street? It's one of the greatest things ever. <laughs> you see their Mad Men parody? Just look that up on YouTube. It's very fun. So you have a significant F. What do you do now? Because you don't know what two groups are different. Now look, to me, a lot of times... What am I interested in? I'm interested in the pattern in the data. Right? And they'll call me and always said this to me. There must be a pattern in your data. When he let talk, you just listen and say, yes, sir. Thank you, sir. And he wasn't tall with me, but you always felt like you were looking up to him. <laughs> wow, you're famous. I suck. I really, really suck, and you're famous. So sometimes I'm looking for a pattern. I've got a theory. Right? I figured that this group would be bigger than the other two. And the pattern comes out that way. You know what my thinking on this is? Screw post hoc comparisons. I said it was going to look like this, and it looks like this, I'm happy. Most people don't think that way. Most people want to know exactly what group differs from what group. And I get that. I get that. 
Mr. H always, you know, me one equals me two, yeah, 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 yeah. Baptism means okay. But which means differ from which means? That's the question you're going to try to answer with these techniques. I'm not going to go into great detail about these and how to do them, because frankly, you would never do these by hand. Uh, there's one you might do by hand, because it might be quicker. But most of these things you just tell the computer, if you have SPSS and you got ANOVA procedure, you also, with the menu, select post hocs, and it just works. So what, which means differ from which other means? That's the question you have to answer. Now, there's the, the first thing you can do is called the Bonferroni procedure, which is, I think we all know, is the San Francisco treat. No, that's Ricerone. Nothing, no one, just getting, okay? How do you get references to things from my childhood? Because you're that's significantly... That's my childhood. You're significantly younger. Yes. Okay. <laughs> but that's from my childhood. Really? They, they still have that? Ricerone. San Francisco. Okay. okay. So maybe you and I just watch too much TV. Yeah. I guess that's the possibility. <laughs> Or I'm not funny. That would be the other one, but I'd reject that out of hand. The bar for the teeth procedure actually takes care of this, because if you did teeth tests, the easiest thing to do would be do teeth tests, but your alpha level goes way up. You got 15 groups with 15 teeth tests, you're in trouble. Now the probability of getting a false positive goes way up. Right? So what Bonferroni does is it basically just divides the alpha by the number of comparisons you want to do. Some of these comparisons aren't interesting, right? If you've got four groups, mother, if you've got four groups and three of them are control groups, let's say it's a physiological psychology experiment where you've done some manipulation, some lesion, okay, I've done some rats, and then you've got sham lesions, which are when they Actually, the rat is put under, you take the skull uh, off, then you just put it back on. You don't actually do a lesion. And then you've got unoperated controls that nothing's done to. Then you've got ones that have been anesthetized. So that's three control groups. Do I care that those control groups differ? They won't differ from each other, by the way. I'm not going to test those. I'm interested in one test. In that case, I pick a control group, probably the unoperated or the sham operated controls, and just compare them to the, to the experimental group. I would just do one t-test in that case. So I do a regular t-test after the game. On the other hand, maybe you want to compare, maybe you got two or three drugs in a study or something like that, and you want to compare the controls. Then you've got to do two or three comparisons. So it's one over n times alpha, where n is the number of corrections you want to do. And corrections are just the comparisons, right? Because you're correcting the alpha level. All you're doing. Nothing fancy. Now, this used to be a real pain because you used to have to go look up in a table. You know, because if you've got 0.05 times, let's say four comparisons and it's 0.05, now your alpha level is 0.0125. T tables don't have that in them. So you'd have these big books full of Bonferroni correction tables. Now we have the computers. So it's not that big a deal. So all you're doing, actually, is a t-test. It's a two-sample, in this case, x1, x bar 1, x bar 2, t-test. Two times the mean score and error divided by n. n is the number of subjects per group. Remember, we're using mean squared error because it's an estimate of s squared. It's the same thing as your quiz said there. 
two primes of Yours? Do you have a question? Question or? Uh, you get to that. That's all it, it again, I would sum if I had one comparison I wanted to do, I'd just do it this by hand. Because I've got the square error in front of me, the ANOVA table. I've got the means. I know the N. I also have a calculator. It's quicker than rewriting the analysis. So a lot of times this is the kind of thing I would do by hand personally. It's probably the only one I do by hand. And I think conceptually, this is the easiest one to understand. You can also, this is a different kind of test. This is one called the studentized range. This is also named after Kurt Student, whose name is actually Charles Gossett. And you calculate what's called a Q statistic. Which, again, should look a whole lot like a t-test. Doesn't it? The largest mean minus the smallest mean divided by the square root of mean squared error over n. That gives you this value called q, and you look it up in a q table. Or you just have the computer do it for you. So, what's this give you though, this q? This now gives you a value, gives you a number, and you say any number that differs by Q points, those two are significantly different. So it just gives you a number. The Q table gives you a number. It's going to 1.362. So you look that up in your Q table, and it says 7.2. And you look that up, and you say, okay, 7.2. Do the two, do any means differ by 7.2? Any means that differ by 7.2 are significantly different from each other. Again, you, people used to do this by hand. You can now see what a pain this is. We look something up, we calculate something, we get this Q value, and then you take this Q value, look it up at a table and say, now it has to be by this much, and now we have some magic number that the means differ by, what we got from our table. It's also easier just to click post hocs. This is a pretty commonly used one, and it's used in a lot. Of, this Q value thing in that Q table is used in some of the other postdoc tests too. This is used in the student newly cools. This gives you a value. You get the Q value from doing the previous calculation. You multiply it times the square root of the square root of n. Okay. And that now gives you a value called W. What the hell is W? It's another one of these things to find out the two, how much do the groups have to differ by. It's a different way. The math behind it is just suddenly different. The newman cools is probably, it's probably the most common one you're going to see. This is probably the most common uh, postdoc test. Yeah, Jay. Why pursue it after you have Q? Why... It's because the, the, the tests, the Newman pools is a little less conservative than the student test range. You pick different ones. I like using one for only just because it has intuitive appeal to me. Um, but that's when I just want to do one and do it by hand. Typically, I'll use this because this is the one most people use. And it's probably the best balance of the cons conservativeness of the test, like it's not going to give you false positives, and power. 
It's the best balance of the two. I really try not to ever use postdoc tests. Because I, like I say, I have a theory at the beginning and I say it's going to look like this and when it looks like this, I'm happy. There's not a lot of people that think that way. I was taught that way in graduate school and I think it's correct. Uh, I, was, and I, got, I know one colleague in the world that thinks like that too. Dave Mumby, the guy that visited from Concordia, him and I are the only people in the world I think that actually think this way. I don't think people should care so much about this stuff. So this gives you a set of comparisons with some range, within some range. Um, so all comparisons with a range of three. In other words, there are three means between them. That's what the W sub R gives you. So then you look up that W. So Q with the range, 0 0.05, that many degrees of freedom, times that, and look it up, this will give you this. So the other one also, this, the, the student-dice range is low, lowest to smallest. This one, this is actually largest to smallest, lowest to smallest. So the difference is zero. Um, whereas this guy is going to give you, oh, I only want to do three comparisons, like these, these three groups that are here. One, two, three. Not four and five. I don't keep a like this. There's another test called Tukey's HSD, uh, and that stands for honestly significantly different. It, it really, really does. Um, it does it the same way, but uses the always uses the largest range. So in fact, it's doing the same thing as the student-type range, except it uses largest to smallest range. This no one calls it Tukey on the two that you see. Uh, there's another test that I wanted to talk about called the Chaffee test that is so conservative that it almost always finds... My experience, when you... Chiffet is the one that says there still are no differences, even though you found a significant F. Seems to me it's so conservative, it's useless. Okay. The question you might ask is, which comparison should you use? Frankly, most people do all of them, and then find the ones that fit their hypothesis and use them to say they always planned on using that. I'm not going to deny you. In a, in a perfect world, they all agree. Or they almost agree. So when you select post hocs in SPSS or SAS or whatever you're using, when you do that, you will have, you will come out with, it'll tell you which means are different by the different tests. If you're lucky, they all come out the same. You'll also get shit either ignored. No one uses it because it just doesn't find anything. Which should face called the LSD, the significant difference. Um, you really shouldn't do it that way. I like I said, I like using <coughs> t-test when I'm done. Uh, that makes me happy. I would stick to one in a paper. It's pretty much a dead giveaway that you're jumping all over the place and you you did this. If within a paper you said, well, in this experiment we decided to change post hoc tests because uh, it uh, violated a series of assumptions, which you know, most readers go, oh, okay, because they don't know the statistics. But it's, also, it's a dead giveaway that you're cheating, sort of. So I'd stick to one of the paper, of course. Um, I usually use HSD, uh, personally. That's the one I've usually used, because um, it was the sort of, it's the middle range between power and conservativeness. Right? But it doesn't mean that the other ones are bad or wrong. They'll all usually come up with almost the same thing except for Chevet. And be happy that you have we have computers and stuff now, because when I was young, we had to know all these formulas, these stupid things. 
Questions about that stuff? You see that? Look at that. We got a quiz done today. We're done early, and we got two topics done. This is how school's supposed to be. All right. Thanks, guys. podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.